members and either welcome or welcome back to At Least There's a Dog, a Star Trek Enterprise review podcast in which we will boldly go episode by episode through the Star Trek series that, whatever its flaws, undeniably has the most dog. We are your hosts, Mandy and Josh, and on tonight's show we will be discussing season three, episode 17, Hatchery. That was a... I was surprised by that episode. In the immortal words of Barry Zuckercorn, those are balls. Wait, what? When when they actually went into the hatchery and saw them hanging from the ceiling, huh. I was like, those do not look like eggs, my friends. Huh. I that, that thought never crossed my mind. Not even a little bit. Up close, they always look like landscape. But this is not an Arrested <laughs> Development podcast. No, it's not. <laughs> Wow, what a way to start the episode. Indeed. Uh, yeah, so um, two-thirds of the way into that episode, I was ready to declare it one of the dullest of season three, and then suddenly it got good. Yeah. Yeah. It had a, a long setup for something that was actually well executed, and uh, I wasn't positive how it was going to go. It was a really long setup. Really long. Like, I haven't entirely forgiven it for, oh, go back to sleep, baby. We're watching the baby on the baby cam, and he looks like he just rolled over. Um, I haven't entirely forgiven it for the endless trudgery of the setup, but the last 15 minutes were quite good. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, hatchery wasn't actually the interesting part of the episode. No. No, it wasn't. But if they'd called it mutiny, that would have spoiled a great deal. Yeah, the um, the Japanese title did that. <laughs> well, it called it Hatchery Rebellion, which I've been just... If I'd just been looking at it, I would have thought that, like, I don't know, the, the eggs attacked them or something. Which I guess is kind of what happened in Archer's case. A little bit, sort of. But it wasn't a rebellion. A rebellion, a mutiny, it's, uh, it's all the same. It was the egg going, Mommy! Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, is, is that not pretty much what happened? Like, you know, in a weird neurochemical way. It kind of looked to me when he was explaining what had gone on, like John Billingsley was trying not to laugh. Uh, also did not notice. It's possible that he wasn't, actually. I just thought it looked that way. Okay. Anyway, should I tell the people what the episode was about? I guess so. All right. Well, as we mentioned, in a nice change of pace, an Enterprise episode that spends the first two-thirds of its runtime crapping the bed picks up considerably in its final 15 minutes. Does not usually happen. The NX-01 happens upon a destroyed insectoid Zindi ship and discovers, deep within, a room full of hanging goo-filled water balloons that are apparently Zindi eggs. Thank you, prop department. Your budget is apparently gone. One of the eggs zaps Archer with a poison dart full of of postpartum hormones, and I guess this is now the spiritual sequel to that episode where Trip got pregnant, because now Archer thinks he's the egg's mommy. Twenty extremely predictable minutes ensue. The most interesting thing that happens is the tragic death of a Zindi fetus, and please do not try to do abortion again, Star Trek. So, uh, side note, yes. uh, when I saw this episode, I saw, I saw like a little bit of the episode, 
I think when I was like home on winter break or something. Did it seem like they were doing abortion? That was my impression and I just turned it off. I I'm was like, really, really afraid that it was going to turn into them trying to do abortion again. Yeah, I was just like, I, I, I don't need this in my Star Trek. But turns out that wasn't the point it of the episode. It turns out they did not try to do abortion. Thank God and Sonny Jesus. Eh, where was I? Ah, yes. But as the crew grows increasingly suspicious of Archer's new single-minded devotion to saving the Zindi eggs, the episode transforms into a tense race against time to save the ship and their mission from turning into... No, from falling, that's what that says, into a self-inflicted Zindi trap. Will the crew save the NX-01? Will Archer remember who and what he is? Which Enterprise cast members do I still need to see in their underwear? Wait, what? Did you not see Scott Bakula prancing around in his boxers? Oh, yeah, I guess that happened. I've seen most of them in their undies at this point. I'm just wondering who I still need to see there. Okay. <laughs> it might be none of them. Actually, I don't think I've seen Reed mostly naked yet. But Yeah, I don't th I think he might be the the one exception. The star of the show Porthos, better have a caretaker who isn't Archer, because otherwise that puppy hasn't been fed in ages by the end of this episode. I I assume someone else has to take care of him. I assume so, too. Because if they're going on about how Archer hasn't eaten or slept for two days, I guarantee you he hasn't been feeding Porthos. I wouldn't care. I would not count on that. Some, sometimes when he you're... He had a, a really single-minded devotion to those eggs. Yeah, but, but Porth he's also like a mommy to Porthos. I guess, but... Maybe you all saw his how... mommy instincts kicked in real hard. You saw how he was treating the rest of the crew. He's not a mommy to them. I suppose. We're just going to assume that Porthos got fed and watered and walked those past couple days. Mm -hmm. Archer's intern is probably in charge of it. Or um, maybe Flox was doing it. Maybe. Leftover from a couple episodes ago. Flox just takes care of Porthos now. That's yeah. my headcanon. Yep. Porthos is actually just Flox's dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that the 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 whole mutiny-ish thing, that got interesting. It did. It was very tense. Mm-hmm. Because, like, it really did kind of feel like a race against the clock or a race against the archer doing a stupid thing that would get them into a firefight. Mm-hmm. Well, and they, also, they got... Yeah. And also drain away all of their leftover supplies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so should I, uh, should I do the uh, trivia? Yeah. Uh, Josh devoted a tremendous amount of time to this trivia. So this, this should be good. The, yeah. The, it's, it's a strange sort of thing. The less inspired I am, the dig, the deeper I dig to try to find something interesting. And then I just fall down a hole and look at a whole lot of things. That appears to be what happened. He was watching videos and stuff. So what you got for me? So, um, the writer of this episode was, and I just learned how to pronounce it. Andre Bormanis, apparently. Andre Bormanis. Yeah. Um, so he's a name that we hear a lot, um, partly because he is a person who for a long time held a job that I feel like I would be better qualified for than a lot of people <laughs> who have held that job, including him. Um, which was science consultant. Yes, yes, sorry. That job is science consultant for Star Trek. There was a lengthy period of time because he he's actually written a decent number of, I think, both Enterprise and maybe Voyager episodes. And there was a decent period of time where 
you and maybe even I would both see the writer credit and be like, oh, it's Andre Bormanis. This, this is probably going to be good. And frequently they weren't. It, it's very hit or miss. It's very hit or miss. He also wrote one of our favorite episodes. Similitude? We'll talk about Similitude. it later. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, like, no, he's, he's actually done a, a really quite a decent job. Um, just, I, I think I'd be particularly good at that, at that, uh, job, but it's not the easiest job to get. And we're going to talk about the science consultants of Star Trek. All of them? I'm not going to name all of them because okay. there are too many of them who have filled that role. Indeed. This podcast would be two and a half hours long. Yeah, but we're going to talk about some of the interesting ones. Okay. So, yeah, so we, we can start with Andre Bormanis. Okay. Um, so he started a science consultant uh, in the seventh season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. Um, and he continued doing science consulting until the end of Enterprise. Okay. Um, in the meantime, he also did a whole bunch of other things. Um, he did a lot of writing for episodes and so forth. Uh-huh. So the first episode that he wrote the teleplay of was a Voyager episode called Fair Trade. Um, I remember that one. Yeah, that's the one where... That was ne- the one where Neelix got in some trouble, wasn't it? Yeah, Neelix um, basically found an old friend and ended up getting caught up in some things that weren't so great. Which is interesting because it's not like a sci-fi science episode. Yeah. Um... But I think, honestly, I think that uh, Bormanis is at his best writing when it's not a sci-fi science episode. I cannot actually name any examples off the top of my head, but my hunch is that you are right. Um, probably... Oh, that's Trudy breathing. I thought the microphone was making noise. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so probably the episode that he wrote that we enjoyed the most was Desert Crossing. Ah, oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, um, he also wrote Extinction, so... (laughs) (laughs) So very hit or miss. Yeah, no, and he's written a whole bunch of episodes throughout the series, and he was definitely the longest tenured science consultant um, of any of the people who have held that uh, role for Star Trek. Indeed, because he was on for, what, three whole shows? Um, Yes. No. Yes, well, he's, he's worked on four shows. He's worked on four shows, but he was there for three entire shows. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, no. No, he would have missed the beginning of Deep Space Nine. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, where Net was it? Net total, probably about three whole shows. Something like that, yeah. Um, his background, he had a, a bachelor's in physics from uh, University of Arizona. Okay, so far you're on the right track. In 1981. Later on, he'd get a master's in science, technology, and public policy. From George okay. Washington. Um, so that's what you got to do next. Oh, oh, you're talking about me getting it. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, got to go get there, that master's have, in public There policy. have definitely been science consultants with PhDs in physics like I have, but uh, not, uh, not not Bormanis. Or Bormanis. Okay. Oh. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, because I've been saying Bormanis this whole time. Feels cause... like it should be Bormanis. Yeah, but then I, I was like, I have to do my loyal podcast listeners justice, and I looked up how to pronounce his name, and what? Okay. Um, yeah, later on, he became the co-producer for Enterprise. Um, and uh, later on, after uh, leaving Star Trek after Enterprise, um, he started working with Seth MacFarlane on uh, Cosmos. They, they did a reboot of the uh, 
I uh, remember. What happened to that? I think it ran for a season or two. Okay. Um, yeah, so they did a reboot of that with uh, Neil, Neil deGrasse, deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. And then everybody kind of stopped liking Neil deGrasse Tyson. And... I don't know. I'm not good. That's, that's not a topic for right now. No? Okay. Yeah. Um, and now he works with uh, Seth MacFarlane again on the Orville. Cool. As their science consultant. Cool. But yeah, he's, he's done a lot of work on different uh, sci-fi programs. Um, a lot with Brandon Braga. Okay. They seem to share a penchant for weird swings for the fences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I don't actually hold anything against him. No. Um, I just think I could do the job not. better. Mm. But that's okay. just because I, I have the... Uh, honestly, if I'm being honest, it's just because I have the, um, the advantage of hindsight. True. <laughs> Which, Very true. you know, lets me go and be like... He green-lighted Threshold. <laughs> Green-lit. Green, yes. I, I'm, yeah, you can still edit I am my here. words. I'm here for the grammar. Yeah. He's still green-lit Threshold, so. <laughs> he, that, or at least didn't fix it. <laughs> that, that he did. Maybe they knocked him out. But he wrote Extinction, <laughs> so no. No. No, he said, great idea, Brannon. <laughs> This will be a groundbreaking Star Trek episode. So anyway, um, let's talk about other people who have been uh, science consultants on Star Trek. Okay. So uh, Naren Shankar was the uh, science consultant before uh, Bormanis, Bormanis who di- and he did it on season six of TNG. Okay. Um, and only that one season, because there were a lot of, like, it was not a job that people held for long periods of time, really. Um and he later would go on to, he wrote a bunch of episodes, including the first duty, so I can blame him. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and then if you want to look at who succeeded him, uh, it would be Carolyn Porco. Uh, or Porso, I guess Porco. Probably Porco. Yeah, because um, she was the science consultant for Trek 09. Oh. Which was the next Star Trek thing after Enterprise ended. And so J.J. Abrams went to her and was like, so how many lens flares can I do (laughs) scientifically? She would be the expert on that because her her work, um, so she's got like a crazy impressive resume, uh, was on planetary imaging. Ah. She worked on the Voyager projects uh, with Voyager 2. The real Voyager. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, like the the 1980s getting images of Neptune Ah, and Uranus. Okay. Cool. Um, and she was the lead on the Cassini uh, mission, which was a probe that was sent to uh, take pictures of Saturn and uh, drop right. a little. Right, so she's done a bunch of real science stuff. Oh yeah, they've had a lot of uh, a lot of consultants who have done real science stuff and have had pretty incredible careers. I'm just trying to think what on Trek 09 they did that would have actually required consulting about science. Something about the Enterprise coming up out of. Um, like a, a methane pool on Titan or something like that. I don't, but, I don't remember exactly what it was. But that was stupid. <laughs> I'm just going to pat you now. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, I think that was an into darkness, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, I remember so little about any of the new track movies. So the, uh, the science consultant who probably had the most influence on the series, aside from... Uh, Manus was uh, Callum DeForest um, who ran DeForest Research 
um, was never credited, but worked on all three seasons of the original series. Mm, okay. Um, I was wondering when we were going to get to where it began. Yeah, th- there was someone else who worked on the cage, but... Uh, um, yeah, but everybody DeFore... on the cage got fired. So. <laughs> yeah, but Kelm DeForest worked on the whole series and d- did a whole bunch of stuff. So if you thought that uh, calling Tribbles bisexual was weird, originally the script had them as asexual, and he uh, improved it. You're you're just standing there with your mouth open, like it's. I'm trying to like that makes for good podcasting. Like. <laughs> You could have them reproduce asexually if they but just they split, split into yeah, flatworm exactly. style, but that wouldn't have been as cute. Yeah, exactly. It would have been weird and probably difficult to do with the uh, with the little fluff balls that they had. Yep. Yeah, but all, he also did things like uh, worked out like how the Horda were able to be silicon-based life forms. Ah, okay. And you know there there were a lot of lines apparently added to scripts because he was like, you know, you gotta he or one of his teammates at because he had a couple uh, collaborators. So he did some it. he did some good work. Yeah. Good for him. The, Started an industry sort of. The science consultant who I think we should all feel uh, the by the way, if you want to read more about his work, um, there's a cool article in Scientific American called The Science Sticklers Who Kept Star Trek in Line. This is now a podcast about science consultants. I I'm going to it's our podcast. We can do what we want. And you let me have this segment. So I sure did. <laughs> that is true. Go ahead. So the consultant we should probably feel the most sorry for oh dear. is uh, Charles A. Uh, I want to say Bikeman, B-E-I-C-H-M-A-N. That sounds right. Um, he's not the, he didn't write anything that this episode is specifically on, so I didn't feel obligated to look up the pronunciation. Is he the consultant for Star Trek Picard? No, Star Trek V. Oh. He had to deal with William Shatner. As the script writer. Oh, what did they do in Star Trek V that would have required a science consultant? The script originally called for the Enterprise to go to the center of the universe. Oh. <laughs> and he managed to negotiate that down to center of the galaxy. Isn't there a giant black hole there? Isn't that not better? But the center of the galaxy is something we can find. True. The center of the universe is not. You also can't find God in space. This yeah. movie was already beyond salvation. <laughs> I love Star Trek V, by the way. <laughs> I know you do. But I think you will agree that that was not an easy job. <laughs> no. I'm sorry, Charles Bikeman, if you developed a drinking problem after that. <laughs> I hope you're doing well. He seems to be. He's currently the director of the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute. Oh, good for him. I yeah. wonder if he keeps Star Trek V on his resume. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's been a whole bunch of different people who have taken this role for various movies or um, like uh, Discovery has had a whole string of different people. Does it have more science consultants or producers? Producers. Okay. Easily. Okay. Um, but I think the most recent uh, one is Aaron McDonald. Um, who is started working on Discovery Season 3. Okay. Um, but was not the person that they brought in for the Paul Ploid thing. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Great. Anyway. Oh, dear. I, th- I thought that was a fun little rabbit hole I fell that down there. That was a fun little rabbit hole you fell down. 
<laughs> so hatchery <laughs> hatchery we were talking about a tv show that indeed, we watched indeed we were we were talking about enterprise and how we watched it and andre vormanis did write this thing um and and it got it got okay towards the end uh but first we have to go back to the very beginning and it's time for faith of the start right so this is a much shorter segment Wherein we ask a one bar. simple question <laughs> on a scale of one to ten: How much did the theme song ruin the cold open? Four out of ten. Four. I also said four out of ten. We were on the same wavelength. We were on yes, um, like the cold open was just kind of weird. Yeah, it it kind of it was first a a previously on segment, and then it moved into a very generic. We found the thing. Okay, take a shuttle pod down to the thing. It was also, but the thing that struck me as weird was that it was a very decisive, we found the thing. And I was kind of like, what thing? Should I recognize this thing? Mm-hmm. Have you all been here? Has it been that long since I watched the show? <laughs> the answer is yes. Yes, it but, has. <laughs> but I, I still think that they, they, I don't know, it felt way too like, of course we found the thing. We were headed right for the thing. And I was like, okay, this is a Zoddy Prime. The thing being a... Uh, a ship. A, a ship. A, a, a down ship. Yeah, a crashed... Uh, Which like, you know... Star- Zandy uh, Insectoid ship. Star Trek vessels happen upon destroyed mm. ships all the time and really should stop exploring them. There, there's not a very... very few precautions. Yeah, there's, there's a pretty high... Uh, Things not going how you want them to. It's a uh, little right. like going into the basement in the horror movie. But then again, do when do they do a thing that goes right? True. Now, now we're getting into like a scalzy redshirt sort we of are, like yes. zone and of the point. Part of the point is it wouldn't be a good show if we just saw their day to day lives where nothing terrible happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't fault them, but that was a weird cold open. Yeah. The atmosphere felt off. Yeah. But then they fixed it. It's been a long road. Oh, yeah. By the time we got around... <laughs> by fixed it, the... it, I mean, you know, a four out of ten on the dissonance by scale. By the time we got to the theme song, I was honestly kind of like, oh, okay, we're back to the part I remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we talk about some pluses? We shall talk about some pluses. I still like their spacesuits. I really do. Okay, cool. Um, it's just it's such a good design. Like, you know, it's sensible. They've got lights so they can see in front of them. It's got lights on the inside so we can see their faces. Yeah. It's got, um, I, I noticed they have different colors for the uh, the Makos and the uh, Starfleet. Oh, yeah. I did not notice that, but the lighting in this episode was kind of weird so oh we are getting to that yeah we're getting to a lot of things we're also getting to some commentary regarding the spacesuits later on but we're going to talk about nice things first mhm you know what i mean oh um, i do i thought scott bakula was great in this episode mhm um even during the part of the episode that was boring like it i think this is was an area where it helped that i could tell what he was going for but his his paranoia and his everybody is against me-ness and also even just his care for the Zindi babies all felt really genuine. Mm-hmm. Even though they were all under the, inf- under the influence of weird Zindi baby psychotropic drugs. 
Um, so props to him. I really enjoyed watching him in this one. Yeah, uh, I especially that last scene where he's got the little uh, little babies crawling little all babies. over him. That scene was creepy. And he's just like so um, in almost enraptured. He's a new mommy. He's just like just the most relaxed, happy. Everything is wonderful because he's got carrying, these babies carrying them around, going, "Shh, it's okay." Yeah, and it was. It was. I like that a lot. <laughs> and Tucker's just staring at him, like, "What the mm, is wrong with you?" Mm-hmm. And it was a great scene, but it was so creepy. I I, I like this weirdness. Yeah. No, I did too. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, the speaking of those baby insectoids, they're cute. They were really cute. They. Uh... I didn't want anything bad to happen to them either. <laughs> I was glad they indicated at the end of the at the end of the uh, run that they were going to make it. We'll talk about that more later too. I'm sure we will, and I don't care. I was glad that somehow or other they knew that the Zindi babies were going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Your turn. Um, I also liked again a lot of this is in the last 15 minutes, but I liked that it was the whole crew working together. Hmm. Like, everybody, even though, you know, some people, of course, had more to do than others, I liked that uh, everybody had a little part to play, and they they were all, they all seemed to be working as a very well-oiled machine. Like, they felt like a crew that all trust each other and can count on each other to do the right thing, which is what the senior officers of a ship should feel like, and especially because many of the characters have gotten shoved to the sidelines this season, it doesn't always feel that way. So mm-hmm. nice use of most of the whole ensemble there at the end. Yeah. Um, I, let's see. So there was a thing in here which I actually wasn't expecting mm-hmm. um, in the first two thirds. The first two thirds were actually, you know, fairly predictable. In fact, have you mentioned that uh, you completely predicted what happened at eight, eight minutes, minutes and 20 and seconds 20 in? Eight minutes 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. I said, I have a prediction. <laughs> And you were right. They're going to imprint on Archer. He is now their mommy. And I was right. Yep. Um, uh, anyway, um, I had figured about halfway through, okay, so this is just going to, they're just going to run out the clock and a Zindi insectoid ship will show up and they'll take over on the babies and Enterprise will go on and everything will be happy. And then a insectoid ship shows up and Malcolm Reed blows it up. Yeah. I was like, huh, I wasn't expecting that. And he got in some trouble for it. He got in some trouble for it. I think he probably did the right thing, though. Uh, he, he, he did. He sure did. That was one of our signs of Bacula's going crazy, so. Mm-hmm. It worked. Yes, it did. Um, the set design was very good. The whole production design was really, really good. Um, I had issues with other aspects of the production, but I thought the design of the Zindi ship was really cool. I enjoyed the little conversation that Tripp and Travis had about the chairs and how they're really uncomfortable for them, but maybe they're comfortable for giant grasshoppers. I would think so if your thorax is sticking out the back. I don't actually know what the thorax is. It just sounds like a thing to say. It's the butt. I got it right? Yes. The thorax is the butt. I'm so glad to have you here as my uh, insectoid science consultant. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's about the extent of my knowledge of insects. I just know that the thorax is the butt. Um, but yes, you would want the hole for the, for the thorax in the back. Um, and You are the design... also the science consultant on all things that are bum. 
Yes. And aside <laughs> from the design of the eggs, which I was like, okay, the prop department went over budget. I thought the design of the hatchery was very cool. Hmm. Cool. The eggs were suitably... The babies themselves were cute, but the eggs themselves were suitably repellent to make it strange that Archer became so invested in them. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. Um, I liked the standoff on the bridge near the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was inc- extremely tense. I really wasn't sure how it was going to go. It, I guess it kind of resolved in the sort of cheesy, all these people have guns, so Travis is going to just go jump on one of them. Uh-uh, I loved that. That was great. <laughs> that was my next plus. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Was Travis just punching that guy? <laughs> Introduced some much needed levity and motion into the standoff on the bridge. Yeah. That's all. Okay. That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> all right. Um, but yeah, like normally... Sometimes you just got to punch a guy. Yeah. Nor- normally a bunch of people pointing phases at each other. Not that interesting. This time, I don't know. Something made it interesting. I think it was like you said, you genuinely didn't know how they were going to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Because you, like, you know that Archer is not going to devote the rest of his life to raising Zindi babies, but you don't necessarily know at that point how they are going to get him back. Yep. Fair enough. As it turns out, Tucker shoots him. Yeah. There was a there was a lot of uh shooting people this episode. There was a lot of shooting people this episode. I don't know how it like works. Um And funnily enough, I was relieved in that scene to see that he had shot Archer and not one of the creepy cute Zindi babies. Yeah, the Zindi babies fell off of him perfectly unharmed. Yeah, which was good. Yeah. Um I feel like after some point between this episode and the next one, um, all the senior staff, like uh, like uh, Malcolm and stuff, are going to have to um, like buy drinks for all the Makos that they shot. Yeah. Um, is it Mako or Mako? I already forgotten. I think it's Mako. Yeah, whatever. We're going to keep calling them Mako. Makos, yeah. It sounds more correct. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, f- I feel like... It's the actor from Avatar The Last Airbender, not the character they named after him on Korra. Okay. <laughs> that uh, was for you nerds out there. <sighs> Sorry, continue. The, um, yeah, I feel like that sort of thing owes, y- you owe them after you, you shoot them, even though it's on stun. Yep. It probably still hurts. It probably stings a good bit, and you probably wake up feeling kind of queasy or something. Yeah. But get, get, them, get them some cake. Go make friends yeah. somehow. You gotta make it up to them. Um, I'm actually out. I just had a few big ones. I've, so. got, I've got one more big one. Go for it. I, I really liked... Um, what's his name? General Hayes? General... Or, uh, no... Major Hayes? Major Hayes. Stephen yeah. Culp's character? Yeah, Major Hayes. Yeah, Major Hayes. I really liked his line at the end when they were explaining, yeah, we we didn't come to you because we thought it was possible you'd side with the captain. And he, and said, he said that I probably, probably would, would have. have. Yeah. I really liked that. He was just, he was being honest. And he was. I appreciate that. And it's honest in a way that kind of hurts. Yeah. Like, yeah, I probably would have done exactly the wrong thing. Yeah. 
I had other thoughts about that subplot, but we'll get to those. One other small plus, I lied, I wasn't completely out. T'Pol got to wear a real uniform. True. It was brief, T'Pol but she got, got to, to wear, wear a real, a real, real uniform, uniform. And the baseball hat. Yeah, and the baseball hat. We haven't seen those baseball hats for a while, but they've still got them. They have still got them. They're good for disguise. <laughs> yes, they are. Um, yeah. Now I'm actually out. Okay. On to the minuses? minuses? Sure. Um, I thought we were done with this boring Reese Hay drama. Reed Hayes drama. And it's still boring. I don't care that they're having this silly measuring contest of guns and torpedoes. Mm-hmm. Like, their dynamic was more watchable in this thing, but I still don't care. I mean, I, I obviously had this as a minus two. A couple episodes ago, or maybe one episode ago, I don't even know. We're, we're, we're not doing these close together. Um, they had like a, they were acting like kids. Mm-hmm. And they had a little fist fight about it. They did, and I thought they had come to an understanding after that, and apparently and they had not. And I don't actually not. care whether they came to an understanding. I wanted it over, as did Archer, and it should have been over. But they're still acting like children. They are, and the indications seem to be at the end of this episode that they would stop, but I don't trust oh, them Oh, I don't. I did not get that indication. Like, oh. hopefully they'll stop. But... I thought that that little episode indicated they kind of come to an understanding if not a truce about where they stand with each other so who knows who knows yeah it could it could change from one episode to the next um is it my turn yes okay um you want to i'll just gonna go hit the big one do it this is an episode where the whole problem the whole problem here came about because they, they took tum- off their helmets. They took off their helmets. When you are wearing a spacesuit, which protects you from everything outside of you, and you get into a room, and it's like, oh, this room might have breathable air. Just I'll take off my has, helmet. Just because it has breathable air doesn't mean it doesn't have something else that can hurt you. Yeah, as it turns out, it did. That's if, l- if they hadn't taken off their helmets, then the, the egg sac would have squirted archer and it would have just been like oh i guess i have to wipe off my windshield now yep that's like if that's like if you were biking and you came across i don't know a patch of sand and you were like oh this ground is soft let me take off my helmet (laughs) kind of just because the ground isn't gonna hurt you doesn't mean nothing else will they're in a pretty hostile environment yeah that was that that was if i remember correctly moments earlier a vacuum indeed and you're just like Okay, well, it's got breathable air now. It's probably going to stay that way. There's no reason for it to not be that breathable. That was a criminally stupid thing to do, and Flock should have just read them all the riot act for it. But they all took off their helmets. None of them were just like, you know what? I'm going to keep my helmet on. Nope. And that's how Archer became a Zindi mommy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is an episode where... It's all premised on them doing something pretty darn dumb. Always wear a condom and also a helmet. Not necessarily at the same time. These are used in different circumstances. Um, Oh dear. Oh dear. Like, one protects you from the vacuum of space. The other one will not. Um, And other things. And we're going to move on now. Indeed we are. There's a lot of weird pregnancy and child having and 
<laughs> stuff going on on Enterprise. So that seemed like the joke to make. Moving right along, the editing and camera choices in here were very strange. I'm remembering one scene in particular where they were like cutting back and forth from, I wrote this down because I wanted to remember it later. They were cutting back and forth from the Zindi shuttle or maybe the hatchery to Travis, Malcolm, and Trip all sitting at a table in the mess hall. And I kept going, wait, where, where did they come from? Why is Travis here? Why is Travis not here? Why is this conversation seeming to happen in two places at once? Huh, I missed that. And it was, it was just a strange and distracting choice. There was also the scene in Sickbay where Phlox is doing the autopsy on the, on the big Zindi. And for some reason, it looked like they were being, we were watching them through a surveillance camera. And I did not understand that choice. Oh, I, I, I understand that choice. You do? Yes. It, it's, it's, it's a stupid practical choice. Um, the Zindi that was being autopsy was a CG yes. element. So they had to have a perfectly stationary camera for it. Okay, but why overhead? I guess they wanted to be able to catch everything in the scene. Um including this expensive uh, CG corpse why not without just the a, camera having to move. Why not just a wide shot? Or better yet, why not have, you know, a small portion of the thing visible and then you can just use a model? I, I thought it was interesting. There were lots of places where I would have used a model. Uh-huh. But they... Uh, but they were really determined to blow their budget on this episode. Well, it's the, it's the early 2000s. I guess. You can computer generate anything. I guess. This is, this is, you're living in the world of George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels. Anything can be CG. I guess. And everything can be. And everything the more CG you make it, the, the more like George Lucas you are. Everything must be CG except the eggs that look like landscape. Oh, dear. That's all. Okay. <laughs> Your turn. Oh, we're on minuses. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll hit another big one that I have. Um, well, no, I'll hit a smaller one first. Okay. So I, I really liked um, Major Hayes's, you know, uh, I probably would have. Yeah. I wanted more. Like, now is the time for you and... Malcolm, to talk about what just happened. Oh, I disagree. I don't want to see them talk about anything ever. <laughs> I mean, like, get this thing resolved. Like, come to an understanding. Stop being children. Don't do this whole, I'm not going to, I'm going to say the minimum amount of things. No, like, there were some interesting situations you just had. You just shot a whole bunch of people. Um, let's talk about it. And I, I was that that was something that I thought would be cool for them to do, because this was the, the heart of this episode was about trust and was about, you know, who who trusts who in the chain of command. And there was a that they, they should have talked about it, I think. I guess. I don't know. I think there's a setup for, like you said, maybe more interesting things to come by them not having talked about it. Especially since Reed doesn't really know how to talk to people. That's true. That he was does in not. fact keeping with his character. And also I just don't want to see more of this, I think is more of why. Yeah. 
Um, speaking of the whole Mako subplot thing, if it is indeed a subplot, I found that whole thing questionable and puzzling. Like, I know that they were making this about, like, who you can trust and who you can't trust and who you don't trust, even if you could trust them. But I was very puzzled as to why Hayes, who is not an idiot, was not more concerned about the way that Archer was acting. Were they trying to imply that the Makos are power hungry and will just take over the ship if given the chance? No, I Because that hasn't been an indication before. And... I thought I was reading in like Stephen Culp's performance when Archer was first giving him command that he was kind of nervous about this and that he did think this was kind of weird. But then he just kind of plowed forward like, okay, I'm in charge now. We're going to help Archer do the thing with the Zindi babies. No, I, I, I don't think that uh, there's any indication of power hungry or anything. It's just the way that what they, what they focus on in their training, what like that was sort of like, I think an undercurrent here. Um, and he pointed it out at the end, like, so he was under chemical control from an alien species. That's not something we went over in West Point. Like he has been trained that the chain of command is the thing. I and guess it's but... that's, you don't consider weird sci-fi possibilities. Like my commanding officer has been uh, compromised. No, you just, you follow the commands of your commander and you do it as efficiently as possible. Okay, Whereas that's not the way Starfleet okay, goes. Okay, but I do have enough friends in the military to know that even in the military, if you think that your commanding officer has been compromised or you think you've been given an immoral or unethical order, you are supposed to disobey it. Like that is something they would have covered in their training. And it to- seemed like at the very least he thought these were weird orders. Yeah, they were weird orders, but I also suspect that he uh, didn't feel qualified to decide how weird they were. I guess. I don't know. I would have appreciated seeing... Like, I liked the performance that I saw, but then it seemed like they didn't do anything with the performance that I saw. And I would have liked, I guess, to see if they were going for this is about the chain of command. I think I would have liked to see a little bit more of that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's all. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, now the big thing for me, um, aside from the fact that the, the beginning of the episode was slow. <laughs> yeah, we've covered that. The ending, everything ended up perfect through basically an accident. The NX-01 has not revealed its location to the Zindi. Virtually all of the uh, little insectoid eggs have now hatched and they're now safe. And the NX-01 can take back that antimatter that they used to get the ship started. And now they will be able to live with their life support and everything's happy there. Everything and did the wrap NX-01, up in a nice, pretty little bow. Yeah, NX-01 gets all their antimatter back and continues mm-hmm. on their mission. And uh, Zindi didn't you know, find them or anything. It's just because- They of, weren't gonna kill babies. Not even little alien terrorist babies. Yeah, I know. But, like, there were no... Aside from, you know, some potential, like, interpersonal issues and a few people who are going to wake up pretty sore with a phaser hangover the next morning, mm. um, there were no consequences for this. Correct. There are often no consequences in Star Trek, but correct. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I just thought that mm. 
the things wrapped up a little bit too nicely considering like they they were fighting tooth and nail against archer's orders enterprise is at its best when there are consequences for people's actions so like it turned out that if you just follow all of archer's orders that he gave mm. right up until they they subdued him at the very end everything worked out perfectly and those are the orders that you were just saying uh Major Hayes should have disobeyed because he was giving weird orders, but they ended up being perfect. And so, like, either the weird orders just luckily turned out to be right, or something. I don't know. It was... uh, I think it was more that the weird orders were timed such that they didn't end up destroying everything. Yeah. Okay. Like, it... It worked out. I just felt like it worked it was, out. It was everybody... a little too easy. I guess I might have liked it if, at the very end, like something that they had done would have a consequence. They got maybe extremely the Zindi, unfairly lucky. Maybe the Zindi would, uh, you know, get word of where they were and start say, you know, a chase for the next episode, so they've got more time pressure. Or something. Yeah, but they've already got the next episode planned, so... Yeah, it would have been been nice to see, like, something that was, you know, that would would make the... uh, Like, obviously they had to mutiny because he was going to endanger himself. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I I feel like... I guess it doesn't bother me that much because I don't know what I would have liked a consequence to have been, because I don't really want to watch Archer brood about how, like, I don't know, the crew doesn't trust him anymore, or there's bad blood between... Or at least talk about... Makos and the... Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't don't know what I would have wanted the consequence to be. Okay. And they can't... They're not going to kill babies. No, I'm not... I'm not suggesting that they do. No, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. saying that, like, that would have, like... That probably would have been one of the easiest consequences for them to have, but that's not, they're not going to do that. It's a family show. Yeah, no, and instead they managed to save all the babies and continue on their mission with no problems. Now, what'll be hilarious is if those babies grow up and are like drawn to, and are like drawn across the galaxy to Mommy Archer because of that time that they uh, reverse imprinted on him. <laughs> I, I'd be in favor. I would too. That sounds like a good fanfic. Um, I'm out. Um, I I thought that things were way too dark in the very beginning of the episode. Okay, yes, they were. Like, I appreciate the uh, the illumination from their uh, you know their their helmet lights. It, it it lends a certain atmosphere, but it was really hard to see. And I think that this is a case of drop a little bit of realism in favor of not hurting the audience's eyes. Yes. There were two other little tiny quibbles that I had, neither of which matter much, but I'll bring them up because why not? One of them was back in season one, Malcolm Reed was so private that no one actually even knew what his favorite food was. And now he just goes around talking about his parents all the time. (laughs) And how his dad's an insect collector or something, which it's not really a big deal. Just it annoys me when they forget who their characters are. That was also kind and of creepy because like... It was. You're talking about collecting a sentient species, not like Ooh, yes, crickets. Yes, yes, you are. Um, 
And also there was a moment when Phlox was like, well, I don't know anything about their incubation cycle, mm. but the babies will probably be born in about a week. And it's like, which one is it, Phlox? Do you not know anything <laughs> about their incubation cycle? Or can you tell us with relative certainty that they'll be born in a week? <sighs> Fair. You Fair. forgot the beginning of your line when you wrote the end, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you could you could know something about the incubation cycle and still not know when they'd be born because sometimes things get born when they want to be born. Sometimes things get born when they want to be born. Indeed, we got some experience of that. Yes, we do. All right, uh, we should wrap this up because it's going long. Yes, yeah. award. So Mayweather report. It ain't Mayweather. Still Hoshi. Yeah, I think it's Hoshi. Yeah, Hoshi had the least interesting things to do. Yep, she got to disobey an order from not really her commanding officer Mm -hmm. that was about it we didn't even get to see any of the translation stuff that she was doing yeah travis was in line for it but then uh had that cool tackle and speaking of we have a kirk award to give out oh every episode we bestow the james tiberius kirk award on the character who spends the episode keeping the keeping the star trek tradition alive legacy Okay, the Star Trek fine. legacy alive by doing best <laughs> William Shatner impersonation, and I vote for Travis this week. I was going to give it to uh, Archer. Punch it! Punch the thing that fixes everything. I I defer to you this time. You let me have four those last week. It's Travis. <laughs> Excellent. Travis is this episode's Kirk, even though he had one cool thing to do, but it was a really cool thing. <laughs> I loved it. (laughs) Hooray. All right, are we done? Yeah. All right, as always, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this, please tell all your friends and family to join the crew. If you're really enjoying this, please consider leaving us a rating, review, or signing up for a subscription on the podcast platform of your choice. If you would like to tell us how we have brightened your day or send us some ideas for the show, shoot us an email at atleastthersadog at gmail.com. And if you are watching along with us, your next viewing assignment is the episode Azadi Prime. Finally. For real. I mean, it, it's only a few episodes, but it's taken us a couple months. It has, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's our fault, though. Take care of yourselves, and until next time, remember to go wherever your heart will take you. Bye. Bye. Bye.